What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, got a little different kind of episode, doing a little Q&A, doing a little mailbag episode where I'm answering your questions. Recently, I put out a survey to the BGDL community, and one of the little questions on there was, hey, if you have a question that you want me to answer on the podcast, here's your chance. Write it down here. And over 100 questions came in, and I, I can't do them all. Here, I'm going to do 10, 12, 13, 14, something like that. As many as I can get to that I, I wrote down beforehand, things that just kind of jumped off the page. I was like, oh, I think I might have something to say about that. And so if you don't hear your question being answered here, I'm sorry. And hopefully I can get to it in another episode. I can probably, you know, I can do more of these for sure. But um, some interesting stuff, some really interesting little nuggets uh, in there, you know, things that haven't necessarily been covered on the podcast or covered in videos. And so just wanted to uh, answer those as best as I can. And, and again, these are my thoughts, my opinions, your mileage may vary, but these uh, answers are based on my experiences and just some things that I, I've gone through designing games, publishing games and, and other. There's some other stuff in there uh, as well. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Launch Tabletop. Are you thinking of making prototypes, demo copies, or short print runs of your game? Well, Launch Tabletop can help. Their print-on-demand service, Launch Lab, helps you make retail-quality board games at all scales, even just one single copy. Go to launchtabletop.com to find out more, and if you use promo code BGDL20, you'll receive 20% off your first order. So if you want to launch your next game project to the stratosphere with retail quality and no minimums, check out Launch Tabletop today. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, let's answer some of your questions. All right, the first one is, is there a point when you should move on from finding a publisher to crowdfunding a game yourself. The publishers didn't pan out, but the community is backing it. Okay, so this is an interesting place to be as a designer because you're thinking, okay, I want to get the game signed with a publisher who already has an infrastructure, a marketing you know, system, they've already got an email list, they've already got the things, they've got relationships with artists and graphic designers, all the businessy stuff. But then things don't work out. Now, I've had this happen several times where I reached out to publishers that I really wanted to work with. I thought, you know, I had a game that fit really well with their lineup, with their company, and things went, you know, seemingly were going well. And then come to find out that I had just been lied to over and over and over again, you know, contracts that never manifested. Uh, you know, you shake somebody's hand and it doesn't necessarily always mean something, even when you, when you think it should. Uh, and so, you know, I've been in this scenario, but let, let's kind of back up and look at things bigger picture, and then kind of dive in maybe some to some details. So one thing to think about is, well, how many publishers have you actually reached out to, right? Because like I could have gone and, and found more. I mean, there's a zillion publishers out there. And, and so, you know, I could have just wrote, written more emails, right? Go find more publishers, go to more conventions, sit down, have more meetings uh, with people. So how many people have you actually pitched the game to? And if it's a whole bunch and nothing is working out, Maybe that tells you something like maybe this isn't a good 
product for the marketplace, not even necessarily that it's not a good game, but if people aren't looking at your game and thinking and telling you and then offering contracts based on the fact that they think that this is a sellable, marketable product that can make them money, then you got to kind of take a step back and, and just wonder about that. Now, bigger companies are thinking more about the dollars and cents than you are though, right? So if you have a game you've been working on for a while and you're really excited about it, you, you think it's good, right? You think it deserves to be out, you know, on people's tables uh, across the world. They're thinking, how much is this going to cost me to pr produce, manufacture, the art, the graphic design? And can I make money off of that? As a designer, if you're thinking about doing this yourself, you don't necessarily have the same concept of things because you don't have to, because you don't have that infrastructure. You don't have all the different things going on that you have to make payroll. You have to pay people's insurance and their loadings and all the stuff that goes along with the business side of things. You're not thinking in those terms. And so when you think about the margin, it's very different than how they think about the margin as far as like, how much can we actually make on this game? You know, you might be thinking about it was like, Hey, you know, if I have a, if I run a crowdfunding campaign and, and I get 300 backers, wow, that would be awesome. Where they would think if we run a crowdfunding campaign and have 300 backers, this is a giant failure and we're going to, you know, sink our company. <laughs> right now, maybe not in those terms, but, uh, you know, companies, especially as they get bigger, they need to scale up what they do. And so that might be contributing as well to what they're thinking, right? The, the economies that they're kind of playing out in, in their mind. So if you have a game that has a very niche uh, target audience or has a very niche theme, it's kind of odd, it's kind of out there, weird kind of thing, then it might not work for publishers in general because you kind of have to go where the market goes. So that's another thing to think about, right? Is like, why is it that publishers are saying no? Why is it that publishers are not panning out? Is it because it's not a good fit for the market for them, right, at scale? Is it because it's just not a good game, which I think you really, truly have to step back and, and receive that. If that is the truth, if that is the case, it's okay, right? We've all designed really terrible games, right? We, we've all put lots and lots of time and effort and energy and money and all that kind of stuff into something. And then it just, it's just not very good. You know, that is what it is. And so move on, learn from it. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. Maybe. But what you're saying in the second half of this question, the community is backing it. Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean you have an email list built up? Does that mean you have like a Facebook group, Facebook community? Does that mean you have a lot of followers on whatever platform uh, of your choice? And like, what does that mean they're, they're backing? Because if you already have buyers, if you already have people saying, hey, here's my money, right? Tell me where to go to, to buy this thing. That's a huge thing. It's huge to publishers too, though. Like speaking as a publisher, if a designer comes to me and they say, hey, I've got this game. It's like, oh, okay, cool. That's one thing. But if they say, hey, I've got this game. Oh, also, I have an email list of a thousand people who are interested in, in buying it already. It's like, oh, shoot, you already made my job so much easier because now we can just tap right into the, these potential customers you've already built up, you know, and, and now we all make more money. So that makes you more publishable as a designer with, with your game. If that's the case, if it's a good game, you've got a community, you've got people that want to back it, then the question really becomes, do you want to start a business? Do you want to deal with all the shenanigans, all the ridiculously frustrating, annoying garbage that goes with a board game company, the freight logistics, the customer service, the, you know, finding artists and graphic designers and, and project management and all the things that go into the timeline and making sure people are getting things done on time. And oh, by the way, 
they don't ever <laughs> basically uh, I've, I've met very few people that in, in the art world that get things done, you know, exactly when they say, and, and I keep hiring them um, because I, I like to work with those people, but it's a challenging thing. Um, so many projects get delayed just because the art gets delayed because art takes a long time. So are you ready to deal with that? Do you want to go through all the, the fun of, you know, setting up the crowdfunding campaigns and then the, the reaching out to, reviewers and previewers and, and content creators. And there's a million things to think about. Do you want to do all that? If so, all right, go for it. You know, if you kind of weigh the cost, you know, there's, there's an old book that says, you know, foolish is the man who doesn't weigh the cost <laughs> before he starts to build. So weigh the cost out. And if you still want to build, if you still want to create this company, publish your, you know, publish your own game through crowdfunding, go for it. There are hundreds of podcast episodes that I've created and other people have created. There are a zillion blogs through Jamie Stegmeyer's blog on StoneMeyerGames.com through the Board Game Design Lab website. You'll find literally thousands of resources as far as this kind of thing goes. So the information is there and then it just becomes you putting it into action. So all of that to say, go for it. I think you can do it. I believe in you. Let us know how it works out. All right, next question. What is your unique selling proposition of the games that you design, talking to me, I assume. In other words, what makes your games special? So what makes my game special? So a while back, I realized I wanted to find a spot in the marketplace that both fit with what I enjoy designing and with what was seemingly an underserved demographic. And so I chose solo games. I was designing a lot of solo games at the time. There weren't a ton of solo games out there. Um, it was pandemic-ish era, and so a lot more people were getting into solo games, and so I saw an opportunity there to create this company called Best With One Games. And so my unique selling proposition is it's a solo game. It comes in a small box. It plays in 20 to 45 minutes. That's usually kind of the sweet spot there. It's a $25 game, typically. And so I am leaning more and more into that. Uh, and going into next year, I've got the Solo Game of the Month Club, basically, that, that I'm working on, where I'll crowdfund and publish a solo game every single month of the year. Similar to the uh, Button Shy model, where every month there's going to be a game. And if you're a solo gamer, check it out. It might be something for you. Uh, every game will uh, come in the same type of box. Actually, if you're watching this on, on video, you can kind of see the uh, the box that I'm going for, the format. This is what it looks like. This is the second edition of Hunted Kobayashi Tower. It's going to be the first game coming out, uh, hitting crowdfunding on GameFound in January. And then it'll release just a, a few months later. So the cool thing about these games also is that they're already done. If you see it on crowdfunding, it is at least 99% done. And the files are ready to go. So as soon as the campaign ends, we go right into manufacturing. Like basically immediately, like a week or two after the campaign closes, you know, when the money comes in, hey, let's let's hit the big green button on the printer. Let's get off to the races. And so that speeds up all the timelines. Uh, I'm also shipping directly from China. So that speeds up the shipping. We're not you know, waiting on the freight to then get to a fulfillment center, to then be in the queue line for a while, and then finally get out to backer. Just as soon as it gets done manufacturing, it goes to a fulfillment center in China and ships worldwide from there. And this works uh, because the games are small, right? These small box games that don't weigh very much that you can ship internationally for not a crazy amount of money. It's still not the best shipping prices in the world, uh, but it is, it's doable. And so those are set, that's several unique selling propositions all wrapped up into, into one right there. Uh, solo games, 
the time, you know, 20 to 45 minutes, uh, small box, easy to fit on a shelf, you know, shelf space is getting more and more, uh, hard, hard. it's getting harder and harder to find, right? The calyxes are, are out there getting fuller and fuller. And so when you've got these giant campaign games, these narrative driven miniatures, hundred dollar games, where do you put that on your shelf? A lot more people are asking that question. Whereas you have a tiny, you know, a, a button shy type of you know, wallet game or a small box game, a lot easier to fit it on your shelf, fit it in your collection when it plays quickly. It's easier to get it on the table and play it, you know, multiple times. When it plays with one player, you don't have to find other people to show up at game night. You just play it there by yourself. And so, you know, those are all unique selling propositions. And then also um, being able to manufacture and ship and get games on somebody's table within three or four months after the crowdfunding campaign ends. That's another thing that I'm going for. So, you know, as far as like you finding your own uh, unique selling proposition, I, I think figure out, first of all, like, what do you enjoy? Like if you if you don't enjoy a certain demographic, you know, a certain target, a certain part of the market, then it's going to be kind of hard to sustain, right? So if you're like, oh, the market needs more party games, um, and you don't enjoy designing party games, I don't know, you might be wasting your time. Now, that doesn't sound enjoyable to me. Uh, the reason I'm doing this, the reason I'm in this industry and in this hobby is because I like it. It's fun. It's enjoyable. I'm, I'm good at it. Not because of the money and not because of, you know, all the other uh, things that kind of go along with like a business or a job. Uh, and so if, if you're going to turn it into a business or a job, I don't know, just make sure it's worth it uh, for you. But, you know, what are the things that are unique about the games that you design? You know, some, some people design amazing three hour Euro games, right? There's a certain part of the market that will spend a lot of money on you know, gray and beige Euro games that, are very thinky and don't have a lot of theme going on, but are very interesting to play. Lean into that, whatever it looks like for you. All right. The next one, what's the difference between a good designer and a great designer? It's a good question. Practice. Uh, it, it really truly comes down to experience. Like anything else, any other art form, any sport, most professions, the longer you do it, the better you get. Assuming that you're being intentional about the time you spend, right? If you just show up to work and you just stare at the wall all day, well, you're not getting better. So, you know, if you're there for 10 years, all you've gotten, and that's all you've done, then all you've gotten good at is staring at the wall, right? So you have to be intentional. You know, if you want to become a great free throw shooter, well, there's really no substitute for shooting a billion free throws, right? That's, there's no shortcut. You just got to put in the reps, right? Just work your butt off and, and you get better, you know? Now, are some people predisposed to be, better than others? Yeah, probably. We all have different things we're born with, different things that, you know, kind of these unfair advantages and things like that. And that could stretch across any number of things across the spectrum of life. But there's really just no substitute for putting the time in, putting in the work, putting in the effort. And the more you do it, the better you get, the more experiences you have, the more wisdom you gain, the more you learn from things. Like I said earlier, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And you just, you learn a lot more. You know, this has been a year for me uh, with a lot of learning, <laughs> a lot of things that have not gone well, a lot of things that have not worked out as I had hoped or like I thought that they would. And and with all of that comes a great deal of understanding, great deal of perspective, great deal of wisdom, hopefully, and, and different things that I can now go into next year and all the next group of experiences and, and have a little more knowledge, have a little better, you know, understanding of, of different things. And so I think the people that we look at as the greatest game designers in the world They've been doing it a long time, right? I, th I think you have to stop thinking about it in terms of weeks and months and, and even years and really start thinking about it in terms of decades. Are you willing to put a decade into this? A decade 
or 12, or 12, not 12, maybe 150 years old, are you willing to put a decade or three, you know, into playtesting, into market research, into understanding what makes a good product for the marketplace, uh, into design and different things? Are you willing to do that? And if so, then you have the potential, you have the opportunity to be great. Is it going to happen? I don't know. There's a million different things that could happen. Um, but I think ultimately it comes down to that. All right, next one. How often do you wash your car? Man, I was hoping somebody would ask me this. This has been something I've been wanting to talk about on the podcast for a long time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know. Some questions that came in were silly, and I appreciate that. Thank you for asking these silly questions. All of this was anonymous, by the way. So all of these questions that came in, I don't know um, who sent it, um, which actually reminds me, quite a few people, when I asked the question of, uh, who do you want me to interview? Like, who are some other designers? Who are some other people I, could, I should interview? A lot of people said me. Not not me as in Gabe, but me as in them. But the problem is the survey is anonymous. And and most of the people that, is, that said I should interview them, they didn't tell me their name, email address, social security number. Like, they didn't give me anything. And so, um, you, you know, if you had a good idea, I can't reach out to you about bringing you on the show. So just be aware of that. Also, a uh, couple, let's see, one person had a customer service issue and said, hey, I ordered a t-shirt, a board game design lab t-shirt a while back. I never received it. Um, but again, no, no name or email address. So if, if that's you, if you're listening to this, you're like, oh, that was me. I need my shirt. Please send me an email. Or if you've already sent an email, send me another one. You know, sometimes things fall through the cracks. I'm sorry about that. I'll get it out to you. If you, if you bought a shirt, daggum, I'll, I'll get you your shirt. <laughs> you know, I'm not, not trying to keep your, your $19 or whatever it was. So uh, anyway, if you filled out something on the survey anonymously, just re realize that I, I might not know uh, who it was. Actually, I don't know. I have no idea. But anyway, back to how often I wash my car. So I, I don't really. Um, if, if it ever gets washed, it's I'm like I might run it through a little car wash deal like at the gas station or something like that. But I live in a tiny little town. Um, we don't have a car wash. They're actually building a car wash right now. I drove by it a few days ago. They're building a car wash. They tore down an old rickety I don't know, shack kind of thing over there next to Taco Bell. And um, they're building a new little car wash. So maybe maybe I'll wash my car more often. Uh, if it does get washed, it's because my kids have done it. Either because they were just trying to love me, just trying to serve, you know, just trying to make me feel good uh, about life. Or they needed some money. And they said, hey, you know, I need to buy this thing. And I'm like, hey, get you a job. And um, they said, well, what can we do? And I was like, I don't know, pull weeds. I don't want to pull weeds. I'm like, okay, wash the car. And so that's, uh, I don't know, a couple times a year. Next question. How do you make the leap from showing prototypes to your friends and family to showing strangers? Ah, that's a tough one. That is a, that's a leap. That's a leap and a half. How do you make the leap? You, you just do. I mean, there's no, there's no magic. I feel like a lot of times as creative people, we're looking for that like magic sauce, you know, the magic bullet to, Oh, this is how you do it. It's like, I don't know, you just, you just put it in a box and take it to the game store or, or take it to a unpub or a, you know, play testing event or a convention and, and, you just sit down and and you hope for the best and it probably isn't going to go great. Maybe it goes okay, but you know, and then you just, you realize that it didn't kill you and then you, you do it again, you know, and, and sometimes it, it turns out really bad and you just, you find a way to keep, keep going. You don't let it dishearten you, uh, even when things don't go well. And even when things don't go great, I feel like sometimes we have such built up expectations for things. So maybe that's another thing is just squash your expectations. Don't go into it thinking anything. Just go into it. And then, you know, you might be pleasantly surprised. You know, maybe your game actually is really awesome. But if it turns out that the game that you've worked on forever uh, is just not very good, or at least just not very good for the couple people that you played it with, right? Because that could also be the thing, right? Maybe this game's just not for them. So it goes sometimes. 
But if you go into it without expectation, I think you're much more likely to have a good experience and get better feedback, get better notes that you can write down for things because you're not sitting there so worried about anything. It's just, it's just is, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like so often we get into this trap of thinking in terms of good and bad. When I feel like most things just are, you know, with, with a big enough time horizon, sometimes good things turn bad and sometimes bad things turn good. I mean, there are plenty of people who won the lottery and thought, oh, this is the best day of my life. And then, you know, five years later, they're, they're bankrupt and their family hates them and life is just in shambles. And so, you know, that was some good that turned bad. It's like, well, I don't know. It just is, you know, these things, they just are. And so just sit down at a play test, go to your local game store or go to a convention, take your game with you and just build up the courage to ask. You know, it's kind of like dating. If you never get the courage to walk across the room and tell somebody your name, I know we live in a day and age where you just swipe right or left or I don't even know which direction to swipe. But anyway, like I know we live in that, but if you really want to find somebody worth finding, uh, you prob- you're probably going to meet them in the real world, in, at least at some point. <laughs> and so you got to get up enough courage to walk across the room, introduce yourself and just ask and say, Hey, I've got a game. If, you know, that's why these playtest events are so great. The unpubs and protospiels and the um, playtest rooms at conventions because everybody knows why you're here, right? It's not awkward or uncomfortable for you to ask somebody to play a prototype. That's that's why we're here. You know, Proto ATL in Atlanta is an excellent event. I highly recommend. I've been to that one. It's, it's great. I had a lot of fun. You know, get a lot of good feedback there. And so just do it. I know it can be intimidating, but you got it. You got this. Again, I believe in you. I think you can. If you're listening to this, if you're watching this, then you're already in the right spot. Then you're already in the right place. You've already kind of got your mindset thinking towards, you know, you're already being intentional. And so you got, just do it. Just go, just go do it. And if it doesn't work out, I don't know, do it again. Put your reps in. That's all, all you can do. Next one. Have you tried implementing games or game designs into homeschooling? If so, what have you found works well? So if you don't know, I think I've mentioned this several times on the podcast, but uh, my wife and I, we homeschool our kids. We have four children, uh, various ages. And yeah, we, we just decided, well, we started doing it in Honduras. Um, even before the pandemic, it just, it was just better, a better fit for us, kind of where we were living up in the mountains there in Honduras to just homeschool. And, and that was just kind of a better situation in the pandemic hit. And I was like, oh, well, we're already doing this, but we got a lot better at it. And then as we moved back to the States, just based on grade levels and based on where every, every kid is at. And anyway, we just, you know, it wasn't some big political thing or anything like that, but um, we just found it's a good fit for us. I like the flexibility being able to be like, Hey, let's go do something on Thursday at 11 a.m. because we can. And when you come back, you can finish your school then. You know, I like that flexibility. And I like being able to just teach my kids exactly what I want them to know at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday when I'm like, hey, let's talk about how to make a good YouTube thumbnail. <laughs> like, let's talk about these things. So I like that. As far as games and homeschooling, yeah, we use games all the time. Um, games are wonderful to kind of break the ice, kind of get things going, get kids into, all right, you know, we're not just going to dive right into history or chemistry, or whatever. Let's play a game first. And that kind of gets kids warmed up or as a reward or as a competition, you know, sometimes using like dexterity games, especially with my younger kids. That's fun. Kind of getting them, you know, used to, you know, used to using their hands and eyes and all the coordination and, and things that go along with that. But, um, yeah, I don't know that we use it as far as like educational. I you could, there's plenty of really good uh, education games out there that are actually fun. <laughs> They're actually um, not just bland, dry, you know, two plus two equals four. Okay. Move a space kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I, I think don't overthink it. Don't put pressure on it. Like just have some fun. Also finding ways to 
teach kids the business side of things, right? To talk about, okay, here's why the back of the box looks like this. Here's what all of this information means. Here's what a barcode is. Here's what all these little country codes or all these, you know, what all the different stuff to talk about the business side, talk about, okay, I'm assuming based on my experience, how much this game costs to manufacture. Okay. Here, the box, box costs this here, these components, these cards, Talking about that side, talk about the marketing, talking about the colors, talking about the graphic design. Like there's so many cool things that you can uh, bring up, you know, bring to your kids awareness, you know, while you're playing the game. And again, they don't, they don't care <laughs> necessarily. You're not going to uh, change your life with the graphic design nuances of the rule book, but you know, it's, it's planting seeds, right? It's getting them thinking in different terms. When I was growing up, nobody talked to me about business. Nobody talked to me about marketing. Nobody talked to me about any of that stuff, you know, um, and not, it wasn't their fault. They didn't know either. You know, my parents didn't know anything. They were factory workers and, you know, we lived in a, a single wide trailer for a while and, uh, it just, you know, it wasn't something on their radar to sit down and be like, okay, let's talk about the nuances of, of the tax code. And so, you know, thinking about my opportunity and all the experience I have now, I'm trying to pass it on to my kids. One thing that really helped me as a parent was understanding and realizing, kind of figuring out I'm not raising kids. I'm training adults and that's a very different thing. And so, you know, whenever time comes for them to go off to college, go out into the world, you know, whenever that is that they are prepared, that they're ready to go. And if I can use games to kind of help them get there. Awesome. That works out for everybody. Oh, also getting them to play test your prototypes and calling it, you know, school time. Hey, that works too. <laughs> Especially, you know, we design a game for families or also my, you know, my kids are getting a little bit older so they can play a little more complicated games now. But uh, yeah, that works too. All right, next question. How do you transition from full-time day job to full-time game designer? Okay, a couple paths. One is to get a job working for a board game publishing company. Uh, Funko has hired lots of people that I know. Uh, you know, Asmodee owns 74% of the <laughs> industry at this point, get a job with them. But, you know, there are certain companies that are pretty big, usually that have access to lots of IPs, you know, like Marvel and Star Wars and all the different things that go with, you know, being able to get into Walmart and Target and sell a lot of copies to a lot of people. Um, so get a job with one of them. And that's, that's a pretty cool gig, right? You get a steady paycheck, you get benefits more likely with insurance and different things. Uh, a lot of those jobs you can work remotely uh, or at least kind of remote-ish where you have to be in a certain state and you have to like, you know, come in certain times a year, meet at conventions, like there's different things like that. But that that's one way that I've seen a lot of people in the industry go full-time as game designers. Now, the downside to that is you don't necessarily get to choose which games you work on. Like you might have a kind of a say, but overall the company or the people above you are like, Hey, here's the games that we're working on. Bob, you're doing this one. And Steve, you're doing this one. And Susan, you're over here. And so you kind of get assigned projects and um, you might, you know, you have a little, little say here and there, but it's not like, Oh, I've got this passion project. I'm going to make it, you know, I'm going to bring it to life here working for this company. It's like, eh, probably not. So, but you're still full time. You're still making money designing games. The other path is to design games that a lot of people buy, you know, and either license it to publishers or, you know, publish them yourself. But to go full time as strictly a game designer, like you're not publishing your own games, you're going to have to design some hits, like some evergreen, you know, award winning, doing really well, selling a lot of copies every single year to be able to actually make real money. Now, if you're single and you don't mind living in the middle of nowhere and you know, you, your cost of living can go way, way down and you don't mind sacrificing, then you know, you don't have to, you don't have to design quite as many hits, quite as many games. But um, overall, you're just going to have to design some really quality games. And another downside is 
you all right, so you design a game, you pitch it to a publisher, they love it, they think, oh man, this is gonna make a zillion dollars. There's still a delay, right? It's still a pretty good lag between them signing it and maybe giving you, you know, five hundred bucks, thousand bucks, whatever in advance. But then it takes, you know, two years for the game to come out. There's there's development work, you know, that wherever you are in the queue line of their their pipeline, they've got other games in front of you. Then if you run a crowdfunding campaign, then you gotta finish the game and then it's gotta get manufactured and then it's gotta get out to backers and it's got to get out to reviewers and out to game stores and customers and then stuff starts rolling in. Oh, this is a great game. It becomes a hit and then people want to buy it three years later <laughs> right after you signed it. So it takes time. I think that's another thing that kind of keeps coming up over and over again. Be intentional and realize this stuff takes time. But uh, yeah, those are kind of the two paths that I understand. All right, next question. How done, quote unquote, should your game or prototype be before pitching it to a publisher? Uh, that's a good question. Done enough. Uh, my, my rule of thumb is I want the game to be done enough to the point where after I pitch it, if the publisher says, Ooh, I want to take this with me. Or if it's an, an online pitch that they say, Ooh, can you send this to me now that the game is good to go, right? It's already playable. It's already, you know, basically done, you know, 90 ish percent done. Maybe there's some things that need to be tweaked and some numbers that need to be balanced and different things like that. Uh, but, you know, have the rule book ready to go, have as much of the game finished ish as you can, just in case they love it and they want to play it now. Like they want to take it back to the hotel room with them. They want to take it home. They want you to mail it to them immediately. Just be ready for that. Right. Because I think that's a perfect case scenario. That's a perfect world. And so be prepared for massive success. Right. Be prepared for the perfect thing to happen. And so whatever that looks like for your game in particular, just make sure it's it's at that point. All right, next question. With so many games on the market, what are some of your strategies to determine if a game's mechanisms or general design is novel? Novel. Okay, so novel being new, unique, interesting, set apart. How novel do you want it to be? Right, you got to be careful not being too novel because then people don't understand it. That's kind of the, the downside of being like wildly creative is that people don't understand you until after you're dead. <laughs> And so don't make something so unique that people are like, what is this? Um, I don't know. Novel enough? Novel? It depends, right? So I'm looking at experience. This might be, you know, deck building game number 4,722, but is the experience new? Does it bring something interesting to the table that I haven't seen a deck building game do before? Right. And that could be mechanically. It could be thematically. It could be experientially. But like, what are some interesting nuances, interesting things that this game is doing that's going to create a new emotion, a new feeling, a new experience for me, the player. And that could be, you know, not new mechanisms, but it could just be a new intersection of mechanisms, right? It could be, you know, mixing deck building with area control, you know, in some kind of way or mixing social deduction with worker placement, like whatever you're doing, like you can use tried and true ideas. You know, you've, you've seen games that use these mechanisms. It works really well. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Pull that out. Ooh, this other idea over here. Okay. That sold a zillion copies. That, that works. Pull that out. What if we put those two things together? Now we've got a new game. So I think that, that's what I would be looking for. Um, if people are saying, oh, this is just pandemic, but in space. It's like, oh, okay. Maybe that's not quite new enough. Now, if they say, oh, this reminds me of pandemic. There's no, nothing wrong with that. That's, that's not a bad thing. But if, if people are saying, oh, this is a lot like, or this is just like, or this is okay, thematically different, but this is kind of the same game as X, Y, or Z. Maybe go back to the drawing board and figure out how you make something new and, and different, more novel uh, to your question. 
But uh, yeah, as far as like strategies, I don't, I don't know. Not really a strategy. It's just uh, play a lot of games, watch a lot of Dice Tower reviews and shut up and sit down reviews and kind of have an, an idea of what's going on, going on in the marketplace. And then, uh, you know, when, you, when you're looking at games, you're playing your own prototypes, you kind of you have a feeling, kind of know. But you kind of have to have your finger on the pulse of the market in general. So be aware of that. You know, game design is not something that works very well in complete isolation, right? One, you have to have other people to help you get the game you know, to a place where it's fun, right? You have to have playtesters and developers and, and people like that. But also, you, you can't just like disappear off into the wilderness and then come back a year later. It's like, well, what's changed? How is the market different now? So just some things to uh, be aware of. All right, next one. What has been your most memorable moment playing a board game thus far in life? I've had a few, um, most of which I've already talked about on the show, but kind of my top three playing shadows over Camelot with my wife's family and her grandmother was the traitor and nobody expected that. And then she won the game and it was just this like ridiculous moment, uh, as she was like about to place the final catapult, which is one of the ending, you know, game ending triggers. And we were like, no, 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 no. If you, you can't do that. If, if you, if you do that, we'll all lose. And she was like, yeah, I know. And she put it in and she's like, I win. Ha, ha, ha. And we were all just devastated. <laughs> so that was well, a good moment. Um, another one is playing ticket to ride with my friend Randy, uh, while he was dying of cancer and, you know, ticket to ride became just this amazing way for him to escape and to have a lot of fun with family and friends. And he, he played like a thousand games of ticket to ride while he was kind of slowly uh, moving on over to the other side. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that. And, um, then one of the biggest ones, you know, probably the biggest one is playing board games with people experiencing homelessness in Atlanta in this just kind of crazy moment where we ran out of food. We were serving lunch at the soup kitchen. Uh, we ran out of food. And so we were in the process of, of, getting more food. We had sent some people out to the grocery store. They got lost. <laughs> so like we had this like time period of like, oh, okay, so- sorry. I know we told you that lunch was served, but we didn't expect 300 people to show up. <laughs> we expected 125. And so we were in this like weird, okay, what do we do? And um, a guy that was working at the, the soup kitchen was like, well, this big box of board games got donated to us the other day. Why don't you see if people want to play games? And I thought that was the dumbest idea I've ever heard. But I went up to the front of the room and I was like, Hey, sorry, but um, we got these games <laughs> and people loved it. They just started playing Jenga and checkers and chess and all, you know, all the battleship and all the kind of basic mass market type stuff. But man, what a cool experience. And every single time after that, that I took groups to serve lunch at that soup kitchen, which was probably, I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of times after that, um, I used to, that was part of, that was my job <laughs> was, was leading mission trips. And so, you know, every time, hundreds and hundreds of times we, we brought games with us, you know, I went out and, and bought all sorts of games and, um, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. Sit down and play games with people, you know, get to the table and, and no matter who you are, no matter how much money you have, what, what you got, you know, at home, if you don't have a home, we all speak game, right? We all speak fun. Uh, and so to be able to sit down with people, share lunch, share a moment, have a, you know, a game of Jenga. Uh, it's just, I don't know. It's as good as it gets. Next question. What is your favorite board game mechanism? I love dexterity. I love anything where the ball is literally in my hands to win or lose. Uh, there's no dice. There's no card draw. There's no like, oh, well, this happened here and Bob did that and Susan did that and, and Ricky over here did that. No, no, no. I'm going to win or lose based on my ability to stack or throw or catch or like do something. I just, I just love it. And you'll notice in my own games, the games I design, 
there's a lot of dexterity in there. Even if it's not really a dexterity game, I will find a way to bring dexterity into this game where it maybe has no business being, but I think it's cool. I think it's fun. And maybe there's a few more people out there like me. So dexterity all the way. All right. Next question. How can a new designer build interest slash awareness for their game? Okay. Social media is a good, good way to do it. It's good friend. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's a good friend in general, but it could be a good friend to help you get your name out there. Um, I think social media might be the destruction of society, but you know, that's not what we're talking about. So, um, get in groups, board game design lab group is a wonderful place to kind of not find buyers, but to find people to help you get awareness, right. To help you, um, link up to the right places. But there's lots of, uh, Facebook groups out there. Board game revolution is good. The board game geek group. I don't know. I don't spend much time there. Dice tower group. I found to be really good. Uh, Anyway, so there's lots of groups. You just kind of have to find a place. Uh, Reddit, I don't know. Uh, Reddit's kind of hit or miss. So, I don't know. I've had terrible experiences there. I know a lot of other people have not had a lot of fun there either. Uh, but that could be a place to kind of get things going. A lot of these places, though, you got to be careful how you preface or how you like present your game, your idea, what you're working on. Because a lot of places, if it's just the hint of you maybe trying to sell something, they will shut it down, delete your stuff, ban you like immediately. And so you kind of have to be aware, be aware of that and, and, you know, go in with that understanding. Right. Um, now my thought is be a ladder builder more than you're a ladder climber, right? Always give way more than you take. Um, always, you know, give, 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 give until you can't give anymore and then ask, <laughs> right. Uh, as far as this kind of stuff goes as a new designer too. I mean, just be patient. Again, it's time. It just takes time. The The best way to build awareness is to put out an amazing game. I mean, the best marketing is a great product, right? A product that people tell their friends about, that people buy and then leave good reviews and then it helps you get more sales. So don't overthink your first design, your first five designs. Um, build a body of work that then you get known for something, right? Um, you get known for making great games. I think that's the best thing you can do. All right, next question. What does your initial game process look like? As in your first solo playtesting right after you've had an idea. So if you were ever to watch me design a game, um, it looks like I've had a stroke. It, it looks like I have had a medical emergency and that 911 should be called. And um, I'm, maybe I'm not going to make it because a lot of my design process is me sitting in my chair staring at the table, staring at the components that I've kind of created. And usually these are just like note cards and some dice, maybe some pawns and cubes I've pulled from another game or you know from whatever. And I'm just staring at the table and I'm mentally playing the game over and over and over again, trying to figure out, okay, turn one, I could do this and I could roll a die. I could move here. I could have these two choices. I could have these actions available. Like, but I'm processing all the different things in my head and I'm, I'm not doing anything physically. It's all mental. And I'm kind of playing out the scenarios like, okay, what if I do that? Well, no, that's, that's kind of boring. Or what if I do this over here? I don't Why? Why would you do that? Like, what's the point? Of, but anyway, I'm just kind of playing the game in my head. So it, it looks, yeah. What does my process look like? It, it looks like me looking, <laughs> it, looks, it looks like me just staring into the void of my table and uh, trying to figure out, is this, is this any, uh, any good? Is this idea worth pursuing? <laughs> Probably not, but uh, maybe I can kind of figure it out. And eventually I'll start 
you know, writing more things down and uh, creating a better looking prototype, but it's still, it still, it's a lot of just staring at my stuff. And last question, what types of games are there not enough of? Great ones. There's not enough great games. A lot of good, a lot of really good games out there. Not a ton of great ones, not a ton of games that are going to stand the test of time with so many games coming out, you know, roughly a thousand games come out at Gen Con every year on top of all the Kickstarter campaigns, on top of all the reprints, on top of all the things in the marketplace. And there's a lot of really good things out there. Um, we were in a, just an incredible time of good choices when it comes to games. But when it comes to which of these games are, are people still going to be playing five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, very few, very few of those. And so as a designer, I think it's tough because it's like, what does it take to go from good to great? time like we've been talking about but i don't know there's just some little extra something in there extra little nuance extra little twist on the experience to take a game from being oh that's really good to that's my favorite game of all time that's that's my top 10 in my top 10 list of games ever made um and how do you as a designer take things to that next level and and that's the literally the million dollar question uh as far as all this goes but um yeah we just need more great games and that means put more time and effort in. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this mailbag episode, this little Q and a, and uh, this was fun. Just kind of sit down and go through a bunch of questions and uh, hopefully you found some good nuggets of wisdom, some ideas in there. And uh, yeah, I can do more of these. I've got, you know, 90 more questions <laughs> I can pull from. And uh, you know, if you ever have a question, feel free to send me an email for game design lab at gmail.com. But good luck out there. I mean, it's, it's tough. We're in weird times everywhere in life, especially creative life. It's like, what does it look like to to do this? Can you make a living from this? How it, I don't know. It's, it's strange, right? It's such a strange time to be alive, but also amazing, right? We, we have so many opportunities in front of us, too many, probably too many opportunities. And so it, the challenge of modern life is, is focus. It's figuring out what do I put my in, my attention on, and with so many things trying to pull on us, you know these little black mirrors in our pocket, right? These little phones that are just eating up our lives, pulling our focus away, pulling our attention. And so, how can we as designers put our attention on things that really matter? And in our case, it's creating experiences for other people right? Other opportunities for, for people to have fun. People we've never met, people we will never meet, right? Different parts of the world that our game could land on their table and create a fun, enjoyable experience for them to have to create memories with people that they care about. So closing thought is let's, let's be really good. Let's be good to each other. Let's help each other. You know, everybody's fighting a hard battle right now, but uh, how as designers can we put our attention and our focus on the things that matter. And in our case, it's, it's bringing joy to people's lives, especially in some, some hard times. But uh, anyway, again, thanks for listening. Thank you so much for being part of the board game design lab community and uh, good luck with everything you got going on right now.